Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Can our country and our democracy ever be the same if we don't hold accountable the person responsible for inciting the violent attack against our country, our capital, and our democracy, and all of those who serve us so faithfully and honorably. Is this America? Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. It is finally here, the impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump. It's the second one he's had, and it's only the fourth in American history. Uh, The build-up has been quite something, and the exception to this one is that the man in the dock is not there, and he's not even in the Oval Office, because he is now an ex-president, of course. That hasn't stopped Democrats rolling out their argument, acting as the prosecution, and they've kicked off each time with a video making the case in vivid form including one where they warned that what they were about to show was not suitable for children. It is an X-rated impeachment. There is much else that's different about this Senate trial. Uh, And that's one reason why I wanted to talk to today's guest. She is the Professor of Political Science at George Washington University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. She's an expert on Congress, which is, of course, the arena for the battle now underway. She is Professor Sarah Binder. Sarah Binder, when people hear this, some of the arguments will have been joined, people will have heard them. But I wonder, are all these legal arguments in a way pointless? Because the jurors in this trial are all elected politicians. And if we're honest about it, they've already made up their minds. Well, I think the answer here is, is is yes, but also no. And I would think of it this way. There are really two audiences for what we're watching on the floor uh, of the Senate in this trial. The immediate audience are those hundred jurors, those senators, as you note. And we think that most of their minds are already made up. However, there really is a second audience here, for the Democrats at least, which is to reach far beyond really the walls of the Senate chamber to kind of make their point to the American public. I think both to justify why they're in in essence trying uh, a former president, but also to remind them uh, of their case against Trump, um, looking forward to try to basically make sure he doesn't run again, even if they can't get the Senate to convict him. And in that sense, 
what's said on the Senate floor does matter quite a bit, I think, at least to the Democrats this time around. How interesting. So they're laying down a case that may not be activated till 2024, but you're putting sort of on the record, as it were, the, the argument so that it's there enduringly. Absolutely. And, and I think that's much of what is behind the the video and the showcase and the tying and trying to weave this story about how Trump's behavior before the riot on January 6th, how he his, his argument that he'd been robbed of the election, how that was integral about what we saw uh, vividly on the 6th. That's right. You're, so you refer to this video, and it's a 13 and a half minute video, which is in some ways simply a, a montage of the day's events. But just the way it was cut together does unfold a story. And by the end of it, emotionally, you're hit with the idea of there's Donald Trump making this speech. And then there are these followers of his, the mob, you know, storming the Capitol in really brutal fashion. And the pictures are very powerful. And you mentioned emotion. And I think perhaps central to that is uh, House Democrat Jamie Raskin, who made a very uh, powerful speech talking very personally because his own daughter and son-in-law were there on Capitol Hill when it happened. I told her how sorry I was, and I promised her that it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol again. <laughs> so very much an emotional case. Again, I go back to the uh, how how effective it might be in the room, as it were. I mean, you've explained how they're partly speaking beyond uh, the halls of Congress to the wider country, but just in in the room. I mean, it is an oddity a Senate trial because it has the grammar of a trial. We're even calling it that, and yet not only are the jurors partisans, but the oddness here is that some of the jurors are, in a way, themselves the accused. And I'm thinking of. Former Clinton Labour Secretary and Democrat Robert Reich, who has called some of the people who are sitting in judgment on Donald Trump, these Republican senators, are, in his words, Robert Reich's words, co-conspirators, because they too were saying that the election was stolen, this fuel, this sort of gasoline that was powering the mob. This attack never would have happened, but for Donald Trump. Yeah, and I, I'm sort of curious whether the House managers will really go there or not. I suspect that they'll keep their attention and their limelight sort of uh, focus on, on Donald Trump uh, and his role in instigating it, even though I, I imagine one could make an argument about the degree to which senators over the past you know, month in, in the wake of the election, like refused uh, to part ways uh, with Trump and to propagate what is called around a town, right? The big lie about who had won the election. My sense is the House managers don't want to go after the jurors themselves. It will, my guess is, only sort of ruffle the feathers and potentially cause all the other Republicans to, to rally perhaps uh, to their fellow Republican side. Yes, it doesn't seem like a winning strategy to have a go at the jurors no, in a it trial. Very, it's still, you know, we think the Senate club of uh, the 1950s and 60s, uh, we think that club is long gone, but it's still there. I mean, <laughs> uh, they don't know each other as well as they did uh, before, but they are quite defensive about uh, their roles as senators and here as jurors, I think. 
Well, well, let's just drill into some of these arguments. Um, On the Democratic side, despite that video, it isn't just about what Donald Trump said on the day, on on that fateful day of January the 6th, that that big rally, uh, but rather the ground laid by Trump, the arguments he was making for many months uh, earlier. Can you just uh, talk us through the sort of key points of that case, moments where they believe even on a sort of slow fuse, a long fuse, a slow burn, as it were, Donald Trump was eventually inciting the crowd that stormed Congress. Well, sure. And it depends on how far you want to go back. And I, I don't recall whether there were, there were references this, to this in the opening day of the, of the manager's argument, but many will point to Trump, when he was president, refusing during the campaign to say whether or not he would accept uh, the results of the election. We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. Um, which gives rise, of not surprisingly, to the actual, first of all, the election night in November, when at two or three in the morning, I was still awake, <laughs> he goes down to the East Room in the White House and has a little mini rally and saying that we won. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. <laughs> so it begins before the election election evening or the early the next morning, he's putting his strategy in play, which is to say um, that he won from the votes that were cast on election day. And as more ballots were counted, who had voted before the election, uh, Trump was saying that all oh, those were fraudulent votes. Puts in motion weeks of Trump, in essence, engineering a campaign. It had its own hashtag, stop the steal, in which the president refused to concede. That continues up until the pivotal day here of January 6th. But just close the gap for me on one thing, which is that that point that Democrats make that he was consistently querying the legitimacy of the election that is not the same in and of itself is it as inciting an insurrection i mean you could imagine a situation where legitimately or fairly a candidate said i'm not happy with these results i think there may have been irregularities that isn't in and of itself incitement is it absolutely not on the face of it no but there's another part here and and i i think we don't really have all the bits and pieces connected here uh, and that is the planning and the looking forward after the Electoral College meets on December 14th, looking forward to January 6th, which is when the Congress meets to count the Electoral College votes, where Trump is planning a a, a rally. Uh, That becomes his new focal point. He's tweeting about it. Affiliated groups are pushing it. And I think this is where we don't have all the links laid up of who was financing it, how, what role did the White House play? What role did his camp, sort of vestigial part of his campaign, his lawyers play in organizing the January 6th rally? And so that I think is where the lines of the Democrats' argument that he's instigating the violence comes from, which is that he's 
organizing that January 6th rally and he's saying, come on, it'll be wild. I mean, the the ways in which he was describing it, certainly using types of language that Democrats say in retrospect, was helping to fuel pulling a crowd uh, of people together in, in Washington on the 6th. So, that, so that's the Democrat democratic case the video is incredibly powerful the you know it's it almost looks open and shut there he is saying we're going to go and fight come with me i'll walk there with you you have to show strength you don't otherwise you won't have a country left it looks like a kind of slam dunk case just walk us through the republican arguments do they eventually essentially boil down to he didn't mean it or he meant it metaphorically and this crowd wrongly mistakenly took it literally I think that is much of it, right? The argument here that many politicians, and they pointed to Democratic politicians in in the House in particular, many politicians use this language, as they say, figuratively, that why would we think that the president was inciting violence if this is a normal way in which politicians can whip uh, whip up a crowd? With this trial, you will open up new and bigger wounds across the nation. For a great many Americans see this process for exactly what it is, a chance by a group of partisan politicians seeking to eliminate Donald Trump from the American political scene and seeking to disenfranchise 74 million plus American voters. So on the one hand, they're trying, their argument is we need to, no one has yet shown that he has literally incited the riot, that all the planning and the far right white nationalist groups were already planning to come and so forth, and that the president is there and you are erroneously tying him to inciting what went on at the actual Capitol. That's one part of their argument. The other part of the argument, I guess, is sort of related, is that this is just a matter of free speech, uh, which is uh, protected under the Bill of Rights, uh, under the U.S. Constitution. And we can't hold the the president accountable and and punish him, penalize him uh, for, uh, we don't penalize people for political free speech. So those two arguments, that this is constitutionally protected free speech, and second, he didn't literally incite of the rioters on January 6th, that at least so far has been what we've heard from the president's defense team. And there's one other argument which has already been adjudicated, if you like, it's been voted on. And that is the notion that you the whole proceeding is flawed because you cannot try an ex-president, that the whole impeachment procedure is laid out for a sitting civil officer under the constitution and said the Republicans who made this case, uh, he's, he's an ex-president, therefore doesn't apply. Judgment, in other words, the bad thing that can happen, the judgment, in cases of impeachment, i.e. what we are doing, shall not extend further than removal from office. What is so hard about that? Yes, and that was the supposed to have been really the the emphasis of the arguments on day one of the trial, right? Two hours aside, uh, is it constitutional to hold a trial, an impeachment trial for a former president? Now, the managers, the House managers here for the Democrats bored in quite squarely onto that question. Their view really amounts to, yes, there have been differences, legal views over the years and centuries in the, in the U.S. However, 
most, even some very pivotal conservative lawyers uh, and legal scholars have sided with the view that, yes, it is constitutional to hold this trial. It really boils down in many ways, first, to the distinction that the House impeaches, right? And when they impeached, uh, President Trump was the president. It boils down as well to the language of the Constitution that says the Senate shall try, literally, it says all impeachments. And probably the most powerful part, I think, was... This would create a brand new January exception to the Constitution of the United States of America. If you can't hold uh, a president accountable for the last, say, we'll call it, they called it the January exception, right? If you run out of time to do an impeachment such that the trial is after they've left office, well, then we've created a January exception. A president can violate the oath of office in the last weeks in office because uh, he or she knows they won't be held accountable. And I think that's probably the core of what was at least convincing to the one Republican who changed his views uh, to join the six uh, total six senators who voted to say that, yes, it was constitutional. I just want to ask you about this vote, because there was a vote about the constitutionality of it, and it went pretty well on party lines with those, uh, I think, six exceptions. But I'm just wondering what that tells us. You nodded to this when you said, I think maybe it says that it's unlikely that you're going to vote for conviction if you've said that the whole proceeding is unconstitutional. And I wondered whether that's right. And I, I'm slightly thinking of Mitch McConnell here, who did speak very potently against Donald Trump on the day itself, on January the 6th. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. You know, I'm wondering whether you can imagine him saying, OK, I didn't think we should have this for the reasons I've said, but now that the Senate has spoken and we are having it, yes, I have to say he's guilty. Am I investing too much hope in, in somebody who, let's face it, has got a, you know, more than a sliver of ice in his heart? <laughs> well, I, I, I think you are thinking about it pretty much the way I am thinking about, about it, which is it, this is still a vote of conscience, right? The Senate made a determination on the first day of the trial, right? That determination is because it was a majority vote, and that goes down as precedent in, in now for future uh, impeachments, right? The Senate held that it was constitutional. So if a senator was looking to justify uh, a vote to uh, convict the president, even though they personally had voted to say this is unconstitutional, the way they might justify it is to say, well, the Senate has spoken and now Let's move on to this vote of conscience uh, that that McConnell, as McConnell has described it. Now that may just be hopeful, wishful um, <laughs> thinking from the perspective of saying, well, maybe there's more open-mindedness on the Republican side. But at the end of the day, this is about lawmakers taking positions <laughs> and justifying them publicly. And so, yes, they could come up with a justification. Whether they will want to, we'll see probably by early next week. 
No, that's very good. You sort of kept hope alive a bit there, in the words of Jesse Jackson, because I think the you know I, I, if it was anyone else, you'd think well they can't possibly manage that pirouette. But with Mitch McConnell, you could just about you know the man who could say that we can't vote for Merrick Garland because there's only a year, but we can vote for Amy Coney Barrett because we've got nine days or whatever. You think he's able to justify pretty well anything, and I think I could imagine Mitch McConnell coming up with the argument that says. Uh, I didn't want this to happen, but now that it has, I've heard the evidence and it's pretty conclusive. The ne- the other sort of cast list, I suppose, will come with this moment, which is that there is going to come a point in the trial where the two sides will be able to make arguments for whether or not they should be allowed to subpoena witnesses and documents. Just tell us how you think that will play out, whether this this Senate will vote to allow witnesses it famously did not happen in the last last time we were all here, the first Trump impeachment. But wh- wh- whether you think they will go for it this time, and if they do, who would both sides want to call, do you think? The reason to call witnesses from the Democrats' perspective would be to try to make these connections more concrete between what the president was doing and what his aims were and the connections between the rioters uh, and any support that was offered by the White House. But the argument against witnesses is it will prolong uh, the trial. And I think Democrats really don't want to prolong the trial. And it's been pitched as this matter, well, the Senate can kind of walk and chew gum at the same time. But that's not really the time issue here. The, The issue here is the spotlight that every day President Biden is not the news of advancing his agenda, that's a lost day for the Democrats in making legislative progress on the president's agenda. And I don't think they want to consume another week, if not two, while they uh, dicker over uh, witnesses and testimonies and depositions and so forth. In which case, I mean, how long do you think it will last? Well, my predictions are always really bad. However, <laughs> I, I do think we could see a vote as early as maybe Sunday, if not Monday or Tuesday of the week that is coming next. Yeah, so that is a really quick, short and sharp trial. But how much of a difference do you think it's made actually to the trial that Donald Trump himself has been denied what was his go-to megaphone, namely Twitter? Well, I think it has definitely lowered the tensions and the pressures on Republican senators not to be targeted by a presidential tweet. At the same time, everybody knows that Trump is watching. And for Republicans, I th- I think it is still the case, although I think everybody's trying to gauge how the degree here, that it's not necessarily so much the Trump tweets as the still fervor for Trump amongst the Republican base voters that has hemmed in Republican senators who might otherwise want to move on from the Trump era. So on the one hand, not having the incessant Trump commentary and needling and attacks on senators, to some extent, surely that lowers the temperature. But those voters are still out there. And I think until the Senate gets this trial behind them, I think uh, Trump is omnipresent uh, because of his pull on those Republican-based voters. 
So without making it or forcing you to make, Sarah, any kind of predictions, so win or lose, does this put the issue to bed? Does this close it out and say, look, this was adjudicated at the highest level? Or does this continue as a kind of running sore in American life and in American politics for years to come? The idea that the President Trump won the election and was robbed that's still believed amongst a large portion of Republican voters. And whether that gradually loses its hold on uh, the psyche of the party, it's hard to know. At the same time, right, Republicans who want to run in 2024 to challenge President Biden, some will decide they want to ride that a message and some will want to strike out in a new direction. And I think the fuzziness of the crystal ball here in part is we don't know yet what exactly will happen to former President Trump in his many legal and financial entanglements that are likely to come. And so we don't know what the Trump stature will be in the Republican Party in a year or so. And but he still will be central to the other uh, calculations of other Republicans seeking uh, to run for the presidency. It's not a secret ballot, is it? Republicans can't privately, quietly vote to just put the stake through the heart of this particular vampire once and for all, and then publicly say, oh, no, I was fully with Donald Trump. Their votes are just like every other Senate vote out there and public. The votes are public. The, I believe the Senate as a whole, a majority, could vote to close the doors. However, I don't believe Democrats w- would do that. And as a basic measure of accountability, which is the really ultimately the purpose of an impeachment trial is to hold public officials uh, accountable for their behaviors when they're in office. I highly doubt that that would go over very well to have a secret vote. Even though there would be probably plenty of Republican senators very tempted by the idea of making sure that Donald Trump could not (laughs) run for office ever again, but without having to be held accountable for that vote. They might like that idea, but it's not available to. Very tempted, I'm sure. So that, at least, I think we can guarantee is not going to happen. But for talking us through all of the rest of it, Professor Sarah Binder of the Brookings Institute and George Washington University, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast this week. Great. Thanks so much for having me. President Trump, too, took an oath as president. He swore on a Bible to preserve, protect and defend. And who among us can honestly say they believe that he upheld that oath. And who among us will let his utter dereliction of duty stand? And that is all from me. I'll actually be taking some time off next week, but never fear, my wonderful colleague Kenya Evelyn will be here at the mic while I'm gone. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks. As always, make sure to listen back to Wednesday's episode of Politics Weekly as Jessica Elgott brings all the latest news from Westminster. Just search for that in the same feed where you found us. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please do look after yourselves and thanks as always for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.